morning, everyone. It's good to be with you together. Welcome to those worshiping online. For those who may be new, I'm Phil, the lead pastor here, and grateful that we can worship and listen to the Word of God together. And you join me in a word of prayer. God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. The flowers will fade, the grass will wither, but the word of our Lord will endure forever. Would you bless, Lord, the reading of your word today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. There is a comedian that maybe you have heard of named Jim Gaffigan, and uh, for those parents out there, you may appreciate some of his comedy. Uh, Gaffigan lives in New York City in a two-bedroom apartment with five young kids, and uh, that becomes the source of much of his material, as you can imagine. Lots of uh, funny jokes that come out of that type of living arrangement. And my favorite joke is his response to people who say, what is it like to have five kids? And uh, his response is, imagine you are drowning and someone hands you a baby. Imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. That's what his experience has been like. And perhaps uh, you can resonate with that experience. I see some parents laughing, nodding out in the, on the group there. I've, I've, I've had that experience myself. And, and I wonder if some of us actually come today feeling as if we're barely keeping our head above water. Whether you've, uh, you're coming today, maybe handing one too many things for you to carry today. Some of us likely experience this on the home front as we're caring for either little kids or maybe we're caring for, uh, for a spouse or an elderly parent who is dealing with medical challenges. We have the full spectrum of life represented here. Perhaps you're coming off a week of work where you are feeling, again, a bit in over your head and we don't have a lot of margin to carry anything else. I know some of you today are carrying and coming with some really hard medical challenges and feeling pushed to the limit of what you can handle. And I, friends, I want to speak into that today. I believe our text speaks into those experiences where we are feeling scarcity, where we are feeling overwhelmed. And in those moments, there often feels, we often feel as if we don't have room to respond to the other needs that are before us. In a world of 5,000 needs, our five loaves and two fish don't feel very effective. And when we hear challenging texts like this where Jesus says, you go and feed them, we could probably empathize with the disciples' protest here. Jesus, we don't have anything to offer. We are at the end of ourselves. So I want to speak into the ways that God might meet us in those places of scarcity and how God might actually encourage us and show us how he can work through those places of weakness and limitation to bless the world around us. The context of our text speaks to a very similar experience. The disciples also are coming in over their head, I believe. They are coming with very little margin, coming to the end of themselves. The context here is that the disciples have just returned from their first missionary journey. Jesus has sent them out to go and preach the kingdom of God, to drive out evil, and they have now come back to report their experience. But this is their first time being sent out. It's likened to their first week on the job. I don't know if you've ever had a uh, that experience after your first couple weeks on the job, thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Am I up to this? 
And so I suspect that the disciples are coming back feeling quite exhausted and depleted. They're sharing about their experiences, no doubt hitting the challenge of this learning curve that they are on. And they need some rest. Along with that, in the backdrop of this story, they have just heard of the tragic death of John the Baptist. It's the last line before our reading today, where it says that John the Baptist was killed tragically by Herod. And it was a malicious death, where Herod, during a dinner party, asked for John's head on a platter. And that's in the backdrop of their emotional experience as they come back to Jesus, which no doubt brought about in their own hearts a feeling of both fear and of grief. There is fear that this man, Herod, who has a lot of power and a lack of ethics, is out to snuff out the work that they are doing, and grief over the loss of this beloved prophet, John. And so we can understand why they come to this place needing to retreat to be taken away to a a quiet place. And in fact, that was the original intent for Jesus in this scene. It's clear in the Gospel of Mark where where we read, Jesus says, come away with me by yourselves, away from the crowds, to a quiet place to get some rest. This is what they need, and this is what Jesus is leading them towards, to come away to a quiet place and to get some rest. But as we will discover, this quiet place turns out to be a place of need and anxiety and chaos. It doesn't turn into that place of respite that they were longing for. This is actually hinted at in the the grammar in this text. So while the NIV translates this, the quiet place, it's actually this word, eramos, which rightly translates as desert place or a deserted place. This is cluing to us what their experience is going to be like. They are longing for quiet, but they get wilderness. They get trial. They get challenge. This is what uh, Scott Jose says in his commentary. No, it was an Eremos place in Greek. It was the desert, the wilderness, that place that biblically is always a symbol of chaos, of the devil's realm, of the place that takes life. Yet Jesus comes to transform the wilderness back into a life-giving place. We're going to encounter the good news about how God meets them in this Eremos place, but I want to begin by just naming that, that this is their experience. They are walking now again through this wilderness, a wilderness that is exposing their need, a place of chaos, a place of brokenness. And we see that unfold as the story continues, that people discover where Jesus and the disciples are retreating to, and they follow. And with great compassion, Jesus welcomes them, and he heals them, and he preaches good news to them. But as the disciples are watching this unfold, they're looking at their watch, and they're noticing the sun starting to set, and realizing that there's about to be a problem on their hands, because they don't have the resources to provide dinner for this group of 5,000 plus. And so they say, Jesus, it's time to end the sermon. Let's, let's wind it up here. Let's send the crowd back to the village where they can use their money to, to buy the food that they need. But Jesus speaks a challenge to them. He says, no, you feed them. And they encounter in this moment this place of scarcity. How can their mere five loaves and two fish even make a dent in the needs of 5,000 people. 
And so they're in this place of chaos. They wanted the quiet place. Instead, they got Aramas, challenge, wilderness, chaos, and need. And I wonder if that perhaps describes the landscape of your soul today, that maybe you come wandering through an Aramas place, a desert place. You're longing for respite, but there is just more challenge, more need that is presented to you today. On Wednesdays, we have been gathering with a a group of people on Zoom to meditate on the upcoming sermon text. And we intentionally just hold silence. We're listening for what God is speaking to us through this word. And as I was sitting in silence with this word with our group on Wednesday, the words that rose to the surface were the three words, we only have. We only have. The disciples, in the face of all these needs, say, we only have five loaves and two fish. And I wonder how you might fill in that sentence today. I just think of this phrase, we only have. What, what do you fill in that blank this morning? Do you come experiencing scarcity and limitation? Perhaps some of you are saying, we only have so many hours in the day, and I can't get to it all. We only have a limited amount of resources, and I feel like I don't have margin for generosity whether through time or our talents or our treasures. We only have a body that's broken, and I feel like I I just can't take on anything. I don't know if God has a place for me right now in the season of sickness. We only have limited education. I don't know if I have what it takes to, to lead. We only have limited life experience. We only have a story that's marked by failure and brokenness, and I don't feel like I'm up to what God is inviting me to do. We only have. Like these disciples, I feel like we have a reflex towards scarcity. In a world with 5,000 problems, we notice the five loaves and the two fish. And and because of that, there's this tendency to want to close ourselves off to God's call. There's a... Failure to want to risk and and take on these challenges to live into God's dream for a broken world because we only have what we have and it doesn't feel like enough. If that's where you're coming from today, I want to speak into that experience of scarcity because this is what I, I notice in our text today. That the disciples have more than five loaves and two fish, but they aren't counting correctly. They aren't counting correctly. They have counted to seven, but they should have counted to eight. This is a a word from Dale Bruner. The disciples think they have nothing here except these seven items, but they have counted only the realities that impressed them, not the reality that should have impressed them the most. The disciples should count to eight. You see, the disciples have noticed their limited resources, but they overlook the fact that Christ is in their midst. They haven't counted on the fact that God is a God of power, a God of provision, a God who can work through our limitations to bless this world. They counted to seven, but they should have counted to eight. You see, here's the good news in this text. 
The message from this text is not this. It's not, go extend yourself beyond your limit. Go burn yourself out. Go have no boundaries. Say yes to everything. That is not the message that I am preaching today. Go try and be spectacular. Go and try and be a savior and fix everything with your limited willpower and self-effort. That is not the message. For you see, this text is pointing us beyond ourselves to see a God of abundance. There is good news in this text. There is gospel in this text. We are to count beyond our meager resources and count on the Savior of the world who is in our midst, Jesus Christ himself. For you see, this text shows how God is able to take broken, tired, weak disciples with limited resources and multiply those things for his kingdom. Now, throughout the text, there are all kinds of allusions in this word that are trying to communicate that Christ is bigger and more powerful than, the, than Moses and the prophets that preceded him. That Jesus is this greater prophet, is actually God himself. There are allusions here to another desert scene, another Aramos place, where the Israelites wandered through the desert for many years. And God, in his miraculous provision, provided manna, unexpected bread, unexpected provision in the desert. The Israelites were called to rely on his provision, not their resources. And what this text is communicating is that Jesus is now greater than Moses. He is providing for his people bread in the desert. And not only is he providing for the disciples, but this gift of of bread and manna now extends to those on the margins, those who were Gentiles, those who initially weren't part of the story. At the end of the scene, we see there is 12 basketfuls left, which means there's plenty for the people of God. There's plenty for the 12 tribes of Israel. So we can risk sharing because God wants to extend his grace, his provision to the whole world, to those in need, to those outside of religious circles. We have one here who is greater than Moses. This text points to the fact that Jesus is greater than the great prophets of the Old Testament. There is a scene in Second Corinthians 4 where Elisha is called to provide for 100 men and only has 20 loaves of bread. And God works a miracle. And yet here we see an even greater miracle. We see a Christ who can take five and feed 5,000. This text, friends, is pointing us beyond ourselves to a God of abundance, a God of enough, a God who can provide for this broken world. This text also points us ahead in the story. It prefigures another meal that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. We hear and hear in this text the grammar of the Eucharist, the grammar of the Lord's table, where Jesus takes and blesses and breaks bread. This points ahead to a God who himself will provide for us a meal that will nourish us spiritually, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. Friends, there is gospel all over this text pointing us to the true bread of life, the wellspring of living water, which is Christ himself. And so I believe we can risk that generosity knowing that God can take us in our limitation and multiply that through his strength and his provision. Let us not forget that this is a miracle story. 
It's the story of a God who takes limited resources and uses it to bless this world. But I want to suggest to you that there are actually two miracles in this text. Again, we haven't counted fully. We've counted one miracle. But there is another miracle. This is what one writer says. Which is actually the, the greater miracle? For Jesus to change those few loaves into an abundance of loaves, or for Jesus to change the hearts of the people there to teach them how to share? Here's the second miracle in this text that we might have overlooked. We see in this text the power of Christ to actually change and shape and form our hearts into people of generosity. People that are freed from our scarcity mentality that feel like we have to hold on to our limited resources to risk sharing, to risk providing for others. That is a miracle that God wants to do in our hearts to form us in our weakness, in our fear, in our brokenness into people that can be used to bless this world. And so I want to just speak this challenge to us today and and reflect on on, on how now shall we live in light of what we've read in this text today. For I want to weave our story into this story. How might God want to use us in our limitation, in our weakness, to bless those around us? So I just want to leave us with a couple practical thoughts about how I think this text challenges us and calls us forth to step out in, in ministry together. And there's a, a couple sides to this. And I, I think, first of all, I, I want us to recover this challenge that God speaks to us to go and feed those in need, to move beyond being a, a spectator to a participant in a world gone wrong. As we look upon a world with 5,000 problems Jesus doesn't want us to be paralyzed into non-action. But he looks to us and he says, you go feed them. And I'm wondering how that meets you today. Where are you being called to, to step in and to, even in your limitations and weakness, be part of God's redemptive work in this world? Sometimes the needs are so great that we can feel paralyzed, right? If you watch the news regularly, you just feel overwhelmed. Where do we even start? Can we even make a difference? We've been talking about this in our media class, how we cultivate a healthy spirituality of media engagement. And one of the things Elliot shared last week is that when we are inundated with so many things, it is two things. One, it fragments our attention. We're just, there's so many things that we don't even know where to engage. And it also sidelines us. We become spectators of the drama of this world, but we don't actually step in and engage. We are moved emotionally, but we don't move physically, as I've shared before. There's an interesting study by a Pew Research Group that noted this contrast between people's engagement in politics uh, at a spectator level. They really like watching the news, but their lack of actual follow-through and engagement. And so this is an observation from Pew Research. Daily news consumers are very interested in politics, so they say, but they aren't doing much. In 2016, most people reported belonging to zero organizations, having attended zero political meetings in the last year, having worked zero times with others to solve community problems. So as we observe, we have this interest, maybe this fascination in a world gone wrong, but we can become passive spectators and not actually step into God's call to be part of engaging 
in the world. Jesus says to us today, you feed them. There's an important moment, I think, uh, for our church a couple months ago. Stephen mentioned this uh, refugee project that is getting off the ground. And a number of you, I think, were on that Zoom call when we heard from some leaders from World Relief as we are talking about some of the ways we might be able to be part of this. And one of the questions that came up, which is a big question that uh, has been asked through this discernment process, is how do you resettle people in places where there aren't very many um, apartments and the cost of living is high? That's a really important question. Stephen's been fielding that question quite a bit. And uh, Medard, who works for World Relief in Seattle, is a former refugee himself. He answered that question in a really important way. And he said he had just actually finished his master's thesis on this very topic. And he said, what I've discovered through my academic research is the answer to that question is the church. It's the church who does this. And I I felt it was like this moment where Medard was saying, you you do this. And we're all just kind of seeing this this challenge and this problem and saying, how's this going to happen? And it was this word, you go feed them. The church is going to do this. This happens through generous people opening their homes, finding unexpected resources to share. Now, this this text can expand beyond just that one particular ministry thing that we're looking into. But I, I just wonder where God is saying to you personally, like, where are you invited to step in, to participate, to engage to be part of the answer of God's desire to, to change this broken world. God says to all of us, you go feed them. You go feed them. But in the midst of that, I don't want to lose this gospel message that as we are called to step into these hard places, we do so counting to eight. We need to count correctly. We need to rely on Christ. Again, this isn't a call to burnout and overextension. There's a place to say no. There's a place for Sabbath. We can't be all things to all people, right? But can we see the ways that God might take our our few loaves and our two fishes and use them, even though they feel limited, to to break into this world with 5,000 problems? Can we offer those trusting that God might multiply and work even through our limitation? even through our weakness. For we have one who is greater than Moses and the prophets, a God of provision, a God who can work a miracle in our hearts as well. So I wonder what your two loaves or your five loaves and two fishes are that maybe don't feel like much, but that God could use. Perhaps we have some friends that are really struggling and we feel like we don't have the expertise to help them, but do we have listening ears? that we can offer God, that could be used to to bless and to heal as we just sit with people, even though we don't know how we can fix the problem? Could God use our mere ears, listening ears, to to help those in need? Do we have a, a basement suite or a rental that we could offer to someone in need? Do we have some extra resources that God is inviting us to share in a hungry world, a broken world? What are your five loaves, your two fishes, some extra time you might have to reach out to someone in need? Do you just carry a cell phone you could use to call? What, what is in your hand that God can use to bless this world, to provide for those in need? 
I want to end with a story about a man named John Baker. And some of you may have heard of him. Uh, John Baker, in the middle of his life, had a rock-bottom moment where his marriage fell apart, and he had to confront the fact that he was, his life was being destroyed, really, by alcoholism. And through that experience, Christ met him in a powerful way through a local church, and he began this journey of healing and recovery. And after his own journey of recovery, he felt this real conviction that other people needed to be encouraged and to find support in their journey of recovery. And he had this vision for what a a recovery ministry might look like in an evangelical church. There was kind of a stigma he was discovering in more Bible-believing churches for those dealing with addiction, and he wanted to figure out how can we break through that. And so he developed uh, this vision for what a recovery ministry could look like that was based on biblical principles. And he shared this 12-page vision with his pastor, and his pastor said, this looks great. You go do it. (laughs) You go do it. Uh, it's a well-known story. This, uh, the pastor was Rick Warren down at the larger church, uh, Saddleback Church in California. And compelled by this, this challenge, John Baker took this 12-page vision and began to just slowly start building this recovery ministry that has been used now to help millions of men and women across this country find freedom from addiction. And it's a beautiful example of how this same miracle that was at work in Luke chapter 9 is still playing itself out in our world. Now, John could have noticed the scarcity. I'm a a man with a past, a broken marriage, a broken story. But God worked actually through that limitation, through that brokenness to provide uh, an avenue for healing and growth for many people around this world. This was... uh, John Baker recently died, and and Kay Warren just had this reflection on John. 30 years ago, John turned the ruins of his life over to Jesus Christ. And God transformed him from a driven businessman with an addiction to alcohol, a failing marriage, and alienated children, to a Christ follower with a passion to help others with their hurts, habits, and hang-ups through the principles of recovery. Now, not all of our stories will be this grand and this dramatic, and I sometimes hesitate to tell the bigger stories because I think sometimes this works out in smaller ways. It's the small mustard seed acts of love and compassion, the small acts of generosity that God wants to use in our lives. But can we see that this God of provision, this God of abundance, can continue to work through us despite our brokenness, despite our past, despite our limitations and our perceived weakness? My mentor, Tom Ashbrook, tells me this every once in a while, which is very helpful. I want to speak it to you. He says, Phil, God is very capable of bringing about the kingdom of God with sinful people and broken people. God is very capable of doing that. I sometimes think we forget that and we count ourselves out. We feel like we're drowning. We feel like we're not up to the task. But that is what God does. He uses us in our weakness, in our limitation, to bless this world. And so I say that to encourage you and to challenge you to just offer what you do have, trusting that God can make something beautiful out of that. I pray that we, Bellingham Covenant Church, would be known as a place where God's abundant grace would flow through to those in need, 
may it be so according to his power, according to his will. Would you join me in prayer? So, gracious God, we we offer ourselves to you today. We acknowledge the places where we feel scarcity, where we feel limited, where we feel weak. Lord, help us to trust that you can make something beautiful out of us. We want to offer our meager gifts, our five loaves, our two fish. We pray that you would somehow use us to provide for a world in desperate need. Lord, would you work this miracle in our hearts, in our context, in our place here in Bellingham. We pray this in your name. Amen.